One of the most fascinating true stories that came out of the Second World War is the story of something that, that took place in a POW camp. Um, and these allied POWs struggle for survival in what is one of the one of the more brutal and inhumane Japanese prison camps. Uh, they were starved, they were beaten, they were tortured, they were stripped of all their dignity and health. And just when things couldn't get any worse, uh, the Japanese forces decided that they needed a railroad built through the heart of the Burmese jungle. And they wanted it completed for war purposes. They wanted it completed in 18 months, which was essentially an impossible task. And so they used these prisoner of wars as slaves to build their railroad. And so here are these prisoners, nothing more than skin and bones and uh, festering infected wounds, forced to build a railroad through uh, the scorching hot jungles of Japan. Well, right along the same time, there was actually a revival taking place among the POWs in the camp. There was a chaplain who had been captured, um, a Scott Presbyterian chapel, chaplain, by the way, um, and he was evangelizing and he was discipling these POWs. And the verse that he kept returning to again and again as the theme of their imprisonment are these words from the mouth of Jesus. You have heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemies. I tell you, love your enemies. And this led them to agree upon the most unthinkable application. We will love and serve our captors by making their railroad project our personal mission. They devoted every last ounce of their malnourished strength to see the railroad not just completed, but completed ahead of schedule. And what happened is they started to win their captors to Jesus. By rules of the camp, they were not allowed to talk about Jesus. That was completely off limits. But the Japanese most certainly encountered Jesus. They saw in these men, they encountered in these men something undeniable, something utterly compelling, and something irresistible. And that's what we see take place, not just in our passage today, but throughout Acts as the early church faces opposition. Last week we talked about, uh, my sermon was No Other Name. Salvation is found in no other name, no other name by which we must be saved. This week, we turn to the practical applications and implications of that, which is this. His name is now our name. We are a people known exclusively by his exclusive name. And we're going to see that in two ways. We're going to see his name do two things in our passage this morning. His name will defend and his name will offend. So defend and offend. Let's start with his name as our defense. Verse 13. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now this verse sets up 
the, the overarching theme of the passage in my message. They noticed two things. First, Peter and John were uneducated common men. Second, they had been with Jesus. Normal men with Jesus. That dynamic is what is being emphasized. And the point that will develop here is that it is Jesus and his name that makes the ordinary extraordinary. Verse 14. But, so in contrast to perceiving that they were uneducated common men, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to lead the council, they conferred with one another saying, what are we going to do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem and we cannot deny it. Two very definitive statements there. They had nothing to say in opposition. They are completely silenced. And we cannot deny it. They cannot deny what has been done. Now remember the context here because it's fascinating. To hear these men say, we can't say anything, is astounding when you consider who these men are. They're the rulers, the elders, the teachers, and even the high priest himself. It doesn't get more educated, more powerful, more religious than this council. But Luke goes to great lengths to show us they are left completely dumbfounded with no idea what to say or do. Because they cannot deny what the apostles have done. The point, though, is that the apostles have done nothing. It's all Jesus. It's the name of Jesus that has been at work. Remember, when the man was healed, Peter immediately, immediately said, hey, everybody, stop looking at us. It is by the name of Jesus that this man stands before you. And so what we see here is that the work of Jesus is their defense. It is their apologetic in the face of opposition, their their validation and their vindication, authenticating them and their claims and their movement as undeniably right and true before the watching world. Now, I know it's easy to say, well, yeah, of course, if we were able to heal like the apostles healed, then nobody would be able to deny our claims either. I mean, that's quite an apologetic. That's quite the defense of the faith. To be able to command a paralyzed man to get up and walk, wish we had that at our disposal. But that misses the point here. I want you to notice something that's easy to miss. It's actually not the miracle itself that left the council speechless. Look again at verse 16. What shall we do with these men for that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident not to us. To all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now it was evident to them. But that's not their concern. That's not their problem. It's that it was evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem that has them in a bind. Skip down to the conclusion of the passage in verse 21. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them. Why? Because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. You see, they found no way to punish them 
not because of the healing itself, but because of the masses who were praising God as a result of the healing. So it wasn't the miracle, but the fruit of the miracle, the revival that was born out of this good deed in Jesus' name. And that's the greater point for us. Supernatural miracles get a lot of attention, obviously so, but they're not as prominent as we think they are in Acts. The church was not built upon the the miraculous good deeds of Jesus. The church was built upon the good deeds of Jesus. What happened and why it became such an authenticated movement that nobody could deny is that they became a counter-cultural community that lived out the name of Jesus in this world. So in a culture divided at the time by ethnic, um, economic, and cultural divisions, here was this strange community where Jews and Greeks and rich and poor and slave and free fellowship together as one family. In a culture where the destitute were completely hopeless to survive, here is this community that sells their possessions so that none are in need. In a culture where the weak are just left to fend for themselves, here is a community that adopts any and all widows and orphans. In a culture of um, struggling under perverse and broken sexuality, here is this community that lives out this strange, radical sexual ethic of Jesus. In a culture that was forced to concede to Caesar as Lord, here is this bold revolutionary community that declared Jesus of Nazareth, not Caesar, as Lord. And I could go on and on with these examples, but what happened is that this movement became undeniable and irresistible to the ancient world and therefore in turn overwhelmed the ancient world. And so whatever opposition it had from any of the leaders or those who hated Christianity, whatever opposition it had, they were left with nothing to do because the deeds of the church defended the church. So this passage is meant to be a microcosm of a greater, much greater point. The followers of Jesus need not defend themselves. Their deeds in Jesus' name speak for themselves. The assumption is that a community under the lordship of Jesus, living out the name of Jesus, is its own apologetic. Leslie Newbigin is very big on this in the, in the post-Christian world that we live in. Newbegin says that to just try to reason people into the faith, to just try to argue people into the faith, whether it be through apologetics or philosophy or whatever, is a vain attempt. Is a vain attempt. You're playing their game. Instead, Newbegin would say, church, you be the church. And it will show the world how right and true Jesus is. And that's true. The ways of the kingdom of God, as outlined by the king in his Sermon on the Mount, the ways of the kingdom of God are undeniable and, in most cases, irresistible. Now, this is so important to consider in our day and age. When I personally look at the church grappling with its identity and influence, again, in a hostile post-Christian context... 
I essentially see two strategies of reaction to that. One is accommodation and the other is argumentation. What do I mean by accommodation? Well, at its worst, it's a concession to our culture's opposition by simply giving in and joining the culture. You don't like us? You oppose us? Okay, well, we'll simply become like you and we hope that you'll like us. We will adopt your ethic. We will subscribe to your worldview and your ways. We will defend our faith, in other words, by making our faith palatable to this world. That's accommodation at its worst, but in its more subtle forms, it shows up in the attractional model of American evangelical Christianity. This kind of bait-and-switch tactic where we will, in a sense, imitate culturally relevant and savvy attraction techniques and hope to impress you and entice you into accepting our faith. This, too, is just a form of accommodation by adopting the strategies of the world to try to get the world to like us. Now, I know that's probably not our issue, But lest we in the PCA boast, we're not like them, we haven't done that thing. Well, we tend towards the other false reaction to opposition. Not accommodation, but argumentation. We're not going to accommodate to your world. We're going to fight the world. We're going to argue with you. We're going to prove. We're going to prove that we're right and you're wrong. You need to know that arguing with the world is just as deficient as accommodating to the world. It's not that argumentation and persuasion is not important. It most certainly is, especially when it's done really well. I mean, that's the whole point of this new podcast that that I'm doing. I'm arguing for the Christian worldview in the public square. It's just that argumentation alone is insufficient. So you'll notice, if you listen to the podcast, that it's, it's less about winning the argument and more about showing the beauty and truthfulness of the kingdom of God and challenging, more importantly, challenging God's people to live that out. So, for example, this week um, on the podcast, we discussed climate change, which is everybody's arguing about now. And, of course, I critiqued the culture's narrative. And, of course, I argued for the Christian perspective of creation. But if you listen to it, Um, you'll notice that it ended with a challenge for us to show the world what it looks like to be good stewards of creation. And guess what? A community of people living out God's ethic of righteous dominion over creation would leave our raging climate change culture speechless. The greatest apologetic in this culture that is raging over climate change is to see a community do it well. And the same could be said of the myriad of issues of our day. It's one thing to argue against the sexual revolution and rail against what it's become. It's another thing to embody the sexual ethic of Jesus and show the world how beautiful and true it is. It's one thing to argue against our furiously polarized society. It's another thing to embody love for neighbor and enemy. Show them how beautiful love is. It's one thing to rail against um, social media and what it's made of our culture and the loneliness epidemic. It's another thing to embody an authentic fellowship where literally nobody is friendless. 
It's one thing to rail against socialism and its destruction. It's another thing to embody a reckless generosity where none are in need. My point is, is that in each of these examples, they have heard from evangelical the former. But what will prove not just true and undeniable, but irresistible is the latter. What proves true is the name of Jesus, specifically his name embodied in this world. So when it comes to defending ourselves in the face of opposition, on one end... It's we will give in to the world. On the other end, it's we will fight the world. But what we see here in our passage and what we see in Acts is we're just going to show you a better world. A world where Jesus is Lord and his name is lived out as our only defense. The truth of Jesus is defended when the works of Jesus are demonstrated. He is his name. Applied is our greatest apologetic and defense. But at the same time, we are not naive that this will always persuade. We understand that some, yes, of course, will oppose it. We just need to make sure it's Jesus they are opposing. We've seen his name as our defense. Let's look now as we watch his name will offend. It's important to understand their actions did not convince everyone. While the masses are praising God for the work of Jesus, the council remains unconverted, obviously. And that's important to note, by the way, for those of you who, who, who wish we had these supernatural apostolic things taking place. Even if God gave us miraculous signs, we are wrong to assume that would convince the world. Instead, look at their reaction in verse 17. But in order that it, may, that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must be the judge, for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Now we admire their boldness, as well we should, but we do have to note the, the content of their boldness. We cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Translation, we cannot help but to speak of Jesus. All that they saw Jesus do, all that they heard Jesus say, this is where they cannot remain silent. And make no mistake... If we cannot remain silent about Jesus, then yes, we must expect opposition. Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you. It is what it is. And so, yes, the first point is true. His name will defend. But likewise, this point is true. His name will offend. But the point here for us is that we need to make sure that it is Jesus doing the offending. This is, so, this is so important for the church in our day. If you have been uh, dozing, wake up. Listen to this one. The name of Jesus is offensive. Yes. His truth is offensive. Yes. His gospel is offensive. 
Yes, there is no denying the offensive nature of our faith. You will be persecuted. But enormous caveats to the persecution promise. Be ever so vigilant that Jesus, not you, is what is offensive. I'm going to be blunt here because, quite frankly, I think this is a real issue for us in our time. I see a lot of conservative evangelical Christians who got the offensive thing down. We're pretty good at that. They know, we know how to, how to be persecuted. But it's not Jesus doing the offending. It's us. Not all persecution is holy persecution. Jesus said, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. You are not blessed when you are persecuted for being a jerk. It is so easy. It is so easy to have this arrogant martyrs complex viewing everything as persecution from that big bad world culture hates me even friends and family may reject me neighbors and co-workers they may despise me yet I will rejoice for suffering for Christ or you're just a little insufferable or they probably wouldn't like you whether you're a Christian or not I mean that it's a serious issue for the church in our day Of course, Jesus is offensive, but we just need to make sure it's Jesus doing the offending. In the Japanese POW camp, not all were won over. In particular, um, there's a ruthless uh, Japanese officer who was in charge of the camp. And the more the Christian POWs loved and served, the more angry he got the more enraged he became. And so finally, he took one of the prisoners and he essentially said, fine, y'all want to act like Jesus? I'm going to treat you like Jesus. And he literally crucified him for all the camp to see. Now that, brothers and sisters, is what it means to suffer for Jesus. Crucified because you loved and served too much. Crucified Because you just felt too much like Jesus. And I hate Jesus. So Jesus alone is our defense. Jesus alone is our offense. You know what that essentially is saying? Jesus Jesus alone is all we have to offer the world. If the world loves us, let it be because of Jesus. If the world hates us, Let it be because of Jesus. Because simply put, all we have to offer the world is the name of Jesus. I have a very difficult, very personal application question for you. This is about as tough as it gets. What is your reputation? Is there anything more terrifying then that question, it is for me. What's your reputation? What do people think when they think your name? What are you known for? 
When people describe you, how do they describe you? Does it sound and feel like Jesus? That is to say, is your name known by his name? Chances are, you're like me when I wrestled with that question this week and found it very convicting. And the temptation is to go out determined to change and give the world a serious dose of Jesus. I'm going to put on my WWJD bracelet and go after this thing, make them feel like Jesus. That won't work. Not only is it not sustainable at the end of the day, that's just more you doing you. That's more you, your name, exploiting Jesus' name to make you feel better about your name. No. Do you know how to become a person that offers Jesus alone to the world? That happens when you are convinced his name is all you have. Jesus alone is all you offer when Jesus alone is all you have. If you want to be Jesus to this world, then you need more Jesus so that it just overflows. When Peter says, I can't help but speak of what I have seen and heard. What has Peter seen and heard? He has seen and heard the gospel in its rawest form. He saw Jesus deal with his arrogant, prideful, stubborn, faithless, at times obnoxious personality with so much grace and patience and tenderness. Oh, Peter, you have little faith, but I'm still with you. I still love you. What did he see? He saw Jesus say, you're going to deny me. And he had the audacity to say, no, I won't. They probably will, but I won't. Even if I have to die for you, Jesus, I'm not going to deny you. And he saw Jesus, I like to think, probably roll his eyes, say, three times, Peter. No, I won't. Within 24 hours, three times, renouncing the faith, swearing to the heavens, I don't know Jesus. And then he watched that same Jesus that he denied and he forsook climb Calvary's hill and die for him. What did he see? He saw Jesus rise from the dead and come back, not with words of condemnation, not with words of I told you so, but with peace be with you. Let's have breakfast. Let's do meal together and let's get reconciled. And he gave Peter the opportunity to say, Jesus, I love you. And Jesus to say to him, I love you and I'm going to use you. What has Peter seen? He's seen Jesus use a broken failure like him to preach at Pentecost, to convert thousands, to stand before this council and say, I can't help but talk about Jesus. I can't help but give the world Jesus. Why? Because I can't get over Jesus. What 
has Peter seen and heard the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so now, that's all he has. And the same is true for us. At the end of the day, friends, Jesus is all we offer because Jesus is all we have. Let me pray. Lord, may this fellowship of believers be known in the bluegrass as those who offer Jesus alone. May we act like Jesus. May we talk like Jesus. May our countenance and our presence and our very ethos feel like Jesus. For that to happen, we need to be filled with Jesus. We can't fake that. We can't produce that. We need you, Jesus. When we truly believe you are all that we have, then you will be all that we offer to this world. Fill us now through your sacrament with yourself and your gospel. In your name we pray. Amen.